All right. If you would make your way back to a seat. And as you do that, if, if you have a Bible with you here this morning, go ahead and, and pull that out. You can open it up to Zephaniah chapter 1, whether that's uh, on it's a hard copy or you've got it on, on your phone. Um, encourage you to bring those on Sundays because what the Word of the Lord says is far more important than anything uh, I'm going to say. And so... Uh, We want to be able to look at that and see it in front of us uh, on any given Sunday morning. And so we're going to be in Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 through 18 this morning. Before we jump in, let's pray, uh, and then we'll get started. God, thank you for this morning. Uh, Lord, I'm, uh, as always, I'm humbled to stand up here and to open your word uh, here as a congregation. God, particularly so this morning. Uh, as we talk about your righteousness and your justice. Lord, I pray that you would speak clearly. God, I pray that your word would penetrate hearts this morning. God, I pray that we would see the truth of who you are and the truth of Jesus Christ in a clear and captivating way this morning. God, I pray that your word would stir within us, God, a desire to... Hold fast to the truth of the gospel, Lord, to cling to the grace of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. God, I pray that in our time together this morning, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would move in powerful and stirring ways. God, whether that's as we look at your word or as we sing, God, as we take communion, as we fellowship with one another, uh, Lord, would we celebrate and enjoy and embrace your presence here with us. Uh, in the Holy Spirit this morning. God, speak to us, teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yesterday, yesterday, last Sunday, as service wrapped up, um, I had a conversation with a young man who grew up here in our congregation. He's off at college now. He's trying to walk in relationship with the Lord, and he looked very troubled, and he kind of caught me back over here in this corner, and he said, hey, can we, can we talk about something? And I said, absolutely. And so we sat down over there, and he said, uh, I just don't think I understand the justice of God. He said, I, I get that he is just, but I don't really feel it or experience it. I think I jump past it to the grace of God. And I think that by jumping past it to the grace of God, I miss something about who God is. And uh, we had a conversation back and forth, and I told him the timing of this is uh, really in the Lord's sovereignty here, because next week, as we keep going in Zephaniah, we're actually going to talk about the justice of God. And he said, that's fantastic. I'll be back at college. (laughs) I said, that's okay. You can listen on the podcast, or you can find somebody smarter than me and listen to them talk about it. But he makes a good point. He makes a good point that we can cheapen God's grace if we don't hold next to it some of the other qualities of who God is, one of those being that he is just and he is righteous. And so part of what I want to do this morning, and it might feel a little different than normal, is that I want to build an argument. And the argument is this, that you cannot simultaneously cherish God's love, grace, and mercy and mitigate his justice, 
righteousness, and holiness. The desire to do that, to elevate some of God's qualities, His love and His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness, over and above His holiness and His righteousness and His justice, is very common in American Christianity today. That we would lift up some aspect of who God is, and in so doing, intentionally try to downplay some other reality of who God is. Is God loving? Absolutely, yes. In fact, He is infinitely loving. But does that come at the expense of any of His other qualities and characteristics? The answer is no. The pastor, theologian, I actually quote him quite frequently uh, from up here. His name is Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this, Though for the sake of clarity and for intellectual comprehension, we have to take God's qualities one by one, we must be very careful never to isolate one of them in our thinking about God. God is altogether in every one of his attributes at the same time, so that we must never put up one of his attributes against another. For instance, we must never contrast the holiness of God and the mercy of God. God is holy. God is Mercy, all together, always, at the same time. So remember at all times that the whole of God is in every one of his attributes, and that God is all of these things at the same time. His love is a holy love. The tragedy of forgetting that and pitting his love against his mercy? No. Everything in God is loving. Everything in God is righteous and just, altogether, always. We must always preserve in our thinking the perfection of balance that is in God himself. You cannot simultaneously cherish God's love, grace, and mercy and mitigate his justice, righteousness, and holiness. That's where we're headed this morning. But in order to get there, we're going to have to make our way through what I believe are some of the uh, darkest moments in all of Scripture. And if we do that well... It ought to lead us not just to the cross, but to a deepening treasuring of the person who hung upon it. So let's read Zephaniah 1, 14 to 18. The great day of the Lord is near, near and rapidly approaching. Listen, the day of the Lord, then the warrior's cry is bitter. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and total darkness, a day of trumpet blasts and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the high corner towers. I will bring distress on mankind and they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Their silver and gold will be unable to rescue them on the day of the Lord's wrath. The whole earth will be consumed by the fire of his jealousy for he will make a complete, yes, a horrifying end of all the inhabitants of the earth. That's the word of the Lord through the prophet Zephaniah. We're just going to step our way through these verses one at a time, but let's actually start at the very end of verse 18. Notice that Zephaniah ends with this statement of universal um, judgment, which is the same place he began chapter 1. Chapter 1 began by saying, I will completely sweep away everything from the face of the earth. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. And then he ends with that he is going to make a horrifying end of all the inhabitants on earth. When you're reading in the Old Testament, particularly 
in Old Testament poetry and you see something framed like that, that's why chapter one ends right there because there's a frame that's set up between the start of chapter one and the end of chapter one. What the author is trying to do is draw your attention to what's in the middle. That's how a picture frame works, right? You frame a photo and you might get a really pretty frame, but the intent is for people to look at what's inside the frame. That's what Zephaniah is doing here. He's going to, the Lord is going to bring judgment upon all the earth. That's the frame, beginning and end. But he wants you to see what's in the middle. And chapter one kind of functions like this crescendo. And if chapter one were a musical score, verses 14, 15, 16, and 17 would be the absolute peak of the crescendo of chapter one. The orchestra is playing at fortissimo at this point because the Lord, Zephaniah, wants you to understand something about what the day of the Lord is going to be like. And so let's just draw out a few of the truths from these verses. The great day of the Lord is near, near and rapidly approaching. The day of the Lord is impending. That's something that the Lord wanted his people to understand. It is coming and it's coming soon. The actual Hebrew in verse 14 says near is the day of the Lord. Near is the first word there. That's what Zephaniah, that's what the Lord wants us to understand through the prophet Zephaniah. We've talked that these Old Testament prophecies have an immediate and a future fulfillment. The immediate fulfillment was that very soon the army of Babylon was going to show up and they were going to carry the people of Jerusalem and of Judah into exile. The future fulfillment is that Jesus' return is imminent. You can read the authors of the New Testament and they make the same statement that he is coming soon. As a general note, you'll notice as we work our way through Zephaniah that Babylon is never named. Why? Because what the Lord wants his people to understand is that he is the one that's going to bring judgment. Not necessarily Babylon, though Babylon is going to be the instrument. It's the Lord that's going to act, and He is going to do this. And the intent of giving this prophecy and making these statements is not that His people would cower in fear, but that they would return to Him in repentance. There should be an urgency that's stirred on by the nearness, the impending nature of the day of the Lord. Next, if you look down, starting in verse 15, the day of the Lord is intense. There's an intensity that's going to come with this. There are five couplets that work their way through verse 15 and the beginning of verse 16. Trouble and distress, destruction and desolation, darkness and gloom, clouds and total darkness, a day of trumpet blasts and battle cry. The second word in each of those couplets is an intensifying of the first word. It's going to be a day of trouble, yes, but more, it's going to be a day of distress. It's going to be a day of destruction. Stuff is going to be destroyed, but more than that, it's going to be a day of desolation. It's going to be laid to absolute waste. There will be nothing left. It's a day of darkness, yes, but more so, it's a day of gloom. Think back to Exodus 10.22 and that ninth plague. It was a darkness so thick that Exodus tells us it could be felt. That's what the day of the Lord is going to be. Not just darkness, but a darkness that's so thick you can feel it. It's got gloom that comes with it. Clouds and total darkness. The actual translation there is clouds and thick clouds. 
that thick cloud image is the image of the cloud that descended on the mountain when Moses went up and received the Ten Commandments. That thick cloud represents the presence of the Lord. It's not just going to be like a day where it's not sunny. It's a day of cloud and thick cloud. The presence of the Lord is going to be there because He is the one that's bringing judgment. It's a day of trumpet blasts and battle cry. That should, should have reminded the people uh, of Jerusalem, the Israelite people of Jericho. What did they do? They circled that city seven times. And then what did they do? They blew the trumpet and what happened? The wall came down. They gave this shout and they went in and they took the city and the Lord did that on behalf of Israel, but now he's going to do it to Israel. Five couplets. There's another way you can think about the intensity that runs through this passage and it's through the five senses. This is so, the imagery here is so poignant that you can literally hear the desperate shouts of the people of Jerusalem. You can see that darkness. You can smell the dust and the destruction. You can feel the heat of the fire of the Lord's jealousy, he says. You can taste the bitterness of what's happening. The day of the Lord is going to be intense, but there's a reason for it. Verse 17, the day of the Lord is brought about by iniquity. It's brought about because of sin. I will bring distress on mankind and they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. We've talked about this over the last few weeks. The reason for the impending intense day of the Lord is Israel's sin, specifically their idolatry. They've broken covenant relationship with the Lord. They've invited something else into the exclusivity of the relationship that was supposed to exist between Israel, the people, and Yahweh, the Lord, their covenant God. They've engaged in idolatry, the worship of something else in place of the Lord. If you've got young children, at some point they'll probably uh, stumble upon a joke that People, I think, have been saying for like generations at this point, but it's still funny the first time you hear it, and that's, this is an A-B conversation, so see your way out, right? That's how the relationship between Israel and the Lord was supposed to be, A-B, no other factors, and yet they've invited somebody else into it, and the Lord says, that thing needs to see its way out, or judgment is coming. This is an exclusive Relationship. The hope is that the people will repent and return to the Lord in faithfulness. And then one other aspect of the day of the Lord here, and that's this, and that's that on the day of the Lord or in the day of the Lord, every idol is going to be rendered completely impotent, powerless. If you look back through, you'll see that Verse 14, the warrior's cry is going to be bitter. That warrior will be able to do nothing in order to save Jerusalem. That the walls are going to come tumbling down of this fortified city and those walls are not going to be able to keep anything out. Those high corner towers are not going to be able to provide enough warning. Verse 18, their silver and gold will be unable to rescue them. You're not going to be able to buy your way out of this judgment, which was a common act at the time. The thought that you could stop an enemy from destroying your city or your country or your people by paying them a tribute. And the Lord says, not in this particular day. Your money won't do it. Remember last week, T.A. talked about the idol of comfort. 
all of these things, the warrior, the walls, the watchtowers, the money, they would have provided a measure of comfort for the people of Jerusalem. They would have put their trust in those comforts to save them and protect them against any and every oncoming hardship, but their pursuit of those comforts will not save them in the day of the Lord. Those idols are going to be rendered impotent. They're going to be displayed for exactly what they are, and that is completely powerless, utterly futile. Here's the point I want to make after all of that. As intense as that is, as dark as that day sounds, it's entirely fair. It's completely just. The Lord is just. God's justness is core to his character. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, we're told that his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Psalm 99 says it this way, the mighty king, that's a capital K, king, the Lord, loves justice. He has established fairness. He has administered justice and righteousness. Exalt the Lord our God. Bow in worship at his footstool, for he is holy. The just nature of God is at the very core of who he is. It's not the only characteristic of who God is, but it is an equal part of all that constitutes him. So we cannot simply write it off or claim it or claim that it was something that God was in the Old Testament. Like we read this in Zephaniah and we say, Yeah, that was God in the Old Testament, but now God is only love. We can't try to exalt the love and the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace of God, and in so doing, intentionally try to downplay or mitigate or possibly eliminate the justice and righteousness and holiness of God. He is infinitely holy. He is infinitely and eternally righteous and justice. That means when we sin against Him, we commit an act that has infinite and eternal consequences. And God is just, and He's righteous which means that he is going to act in response to those things. The character of God, all of the character of God, is eternally unchanging. What he was in the Old Testament, he is in the New Testament. What he was at creation, he is today. What he was in eternity past, he will be forevermore into eternity future. I want to spend just a couple minutes defining the justice, the justness, of God. Righteousness and justice have the same word grouping both in Hebrew and in Greek. In English, we think of these as two different words with two entirely different meanings. If something is righteous, we think of it as a kind of rightness or uprightness or morality. When something is, we talk of justice, we're talking about fairness or equality, um, something that's lawful, it's just. In Hebrew, the word is tzedakah. That's the word group that we get both righteous and just. In Greek, the word is dikaios. One word that we translate two different ways. When the Bible talks about righteousness, it's talking about an internal quality that God exhibits. He always acts in accordance with what is right. In fact, he is the standard by which rightness is defined. That's inherent and eternal within him. 
He is infinite in his righteousness. If God declares something right, then it is right. And he not only declares it to be right, he will always act in accordance with that thing because it is right. That's what we mean when we say that God is righteous. When we talk about God's justice, we're talking about God's external administration of what is right. Because of his righteousness, it is absolutely necessary that he treat people according to what they deserve. He cannot violate that. To do so would be to go against the righteousness of his character. As soon as God doesn't perfectly administer justice, he's no longer righteous because he's not acted in accordance to what is right. Follow? Does that make sense? He does not do justice necessarily on a short-term scale in an immediate sense like we would often like him to, but eternity is going to bear out the fact that he was perfectly just at all times in all things. Millard Erickson gives this illustration that I think is helpful. In other words, you can think of God like a judge who as a private individual perfectly adheres to the law of society and who in his official capacity perfectly administers that same law, applying it to others. To carry on that sort of human analogy, God doesn't give the death penalty for traffic tickets. That would not be just. Nor does he give a small fine for a triple homicide. That wouldn't be just. God doesn't turn a blind eye to someone because that someone is his friend, nor does he drop the hammer because someone wronged him in third period biology in ninth grade. That's not how God acts. He's righteous and he's just. Perfectly and eternally, he upholds both internally and externally what is right and fair. That is God's righteousness. That is his justice. And so, think back to Zephaniah 1, 14 through 18. This picture of justice is just. It's fair. The punishment that the Lord warns of here is not excessive. If he were to dole out something that was excessive, that would be unrighteous and unjust. So what the Lord says is coming to Jerusalem and is coming to Judah, as hard as it is to fathom, is entirely fair. It conforms to both God's internal righteousness and his external administration of justness. And then for us today, the day of the Lord that's yet to come when Jesus returns a second time and all that you read about in Revelation with the trumpets and the seals and the bowls and the things that are going to be poured out, it's fair. It's perfectly fair. It has to be. Because if it wasn't perfectly fair, then God wouldn't be righteous. And he wouldn't be just. But we know that he is. The Lord is just. That's what we take away from Zephaniah 1, 14 to 18. But what does that tell us about the gospel? How do we read something like that and put it in light of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross? John Piper says this, The wisdom of God has ordained a way for the love of God to save us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. Let me read that again. The wisdom of God has ordained a way for the love of God to save us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. And that way is Jesus. More specifically, that way is the blood of Jesus poured out on the cross. This is what we learn about the gospel or what we are reminded of about the gospel from this passage. That in Jesus, justice 
has been satisfied. For all of Zephaniah's intense description of the day of the Lord, for all of the reality of what took place when Babylon laid siege to Jerusalem, for all the imagery and the intensity that we read about and what's coming in Revelation, the most intense picture of God's justice and His righteousness took place on a hill outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. There at Calvary, on the cross, justice was perfectly, infinitely, eternally, gloriously satisfied. The means by which that happens is the blood of Jesus Christ. Look back at Zephaniah 1.17. I will bring distress on mankind, and they will walk like the blind, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. I want to talk about Jesus' blood here for just a couple of moments. And as I do that, those who are going to pass out communion are going to come and and pass out these elements. You can just take a stack of two cups. Yep, if you're passing out communion, come and grab them. There you are. Take those, pass them out. The little wafers that are in the middle are gluten-free. So if you need one of those, grab it out of the middle. Otherwise, there's a wafer in your two stack of cups. What you're going to be holding is a little thing of juice, that when we take communion is to represent the blood of Christ. And we don't have time to do a deep dive on all that is within the blood of Christ, but let me point out just a few truths. The first is that His blood is perfect. If you want to get a really good grasp on the justice of God, read the book Leviticus. Trust me on that. The book walks through all the sacrifices necessary for the various ways in which we might sin, even in the most ordinary and mundane acts of life. When you read Leviticus, you get a picture of what's required to pay the price for sin. There is blood all over the pages of Leviticus. The blood of birds, the blood of bulls, the blood of rams, and most importantly, the blood of perfect, spotless lambs. And the blood that's all over the pages of Leviticus points us to the blood of Jesus Christ, the ultimate Lamb of God, whose blood was perfect in every way. His blood alone can provide and has provided the final sacrifice necessary for sin. His blood is perfect. His blood is also precious. Zephaniah says that on the day of the Lord, the blood of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will be poured out like dust. That is to say, it will be worth nothing. That doesn't mean that the blood of those people doesn't matter, that the people are unimportant to the Lord. It simply means that when we are put next to the eternal consequences of our own sin, our blood cannot pay the price necessary in order to make atonement for that sin. Our blood is worthless in that regard. It cannot pay our debt, but the blood of Jesus is different. The blood of Jesus is precious. The perfect, faultless, unstained, unmarred, entirely holy blood of the Son of God is of infinite value when it comes to the repayment of the debt of our sin. Whereas the blood of all the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah was as cheap as dust in the face of the coming justice of God, the blood of one man, Jesus Christ, is precious. It's precious in the sight of the Lord. It should be precious in the sight of humanity. And last, his blood is potent. That is to say, powerful. All of those idols that the people of Israel clung to, they could do nothing to save They're impotent in the day of the Lord. But the blood of Jesus, brothers and sisters, that blood is potent. In fact, it's the only thing that's potent.
Whereas the idols of Judah and the idols of today are holy and capable of saving us from the justice of God poured out upon our sin, the blood of Jesus is the only thing that's fully capable to save us. His blood is potent. There's no other place to look than the cross of Jesus where His blood was poured out on our behalf in order to find the satisfaction of the Lord's justice and righteousness. And that is grace. We love it and we cherish it because in the wisdom of God, He has ordained a way for the love of God to save us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. That is what happened in the gospel. God did not eliminate some part of His character. He perfectly upheld all of it. The cross of Jesus Christ is the exact intersection of God's love and grace and mercy with His holiness and righteousness and justice. There at the cross, he upheld the fullness of his character wondrously, gloriously, and magnificently. He did it in the person of Jesus Christ, and he wants the entire world to know it. Because of the perfect, precious, potent blood of Jesus, the day of the Lord can be a day of blessing rather than a day of judgment. The road to that blessing is through faith and repentance. The knowledge of the impending, intense day of the Lord is to lead us to repent to turn to Him, to throw off whatever else we might worship and cling to grace. We don't write off God's justice and righteousness. In fact, we can't because if we were to write off His justice and righteousness, there would be no need for His grace and mercy. If you eliminate the fact that God is just and He is righteous, you've eliminated your need for Jesus Christ. What you hold before you in your hands is not just a picture of God's love and grace and mercy. It's also the most devastating picture of His righteousness and holiness and justice. When we come to the Lord, we come to the cross, we come to the table and we take communion, we're celebrating God's goodness and His forgiveness, but we're also celebrating the terrible reality, the awesome reality, and by that I mean it strikes awe in us that God is righteous and just. And we celebrate the fact that in the person of Jesus Christ, that righteousness and justice has been entirely satisfied on our behalf. It's the most glorious news in all of the Bible. It's the most glorious news in all of human history. It ought to be the most glorious news in the entirety of your life. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, we're going to take communion together. Normally we do this attached to music. We got some song playing, or we're going to take communion and go right into worship. Today, we're just going to take communion in silence because I think that in and of itself, silence before the Lord as we ponder His justice and His mercy and His love and His grace is worship in itself. So I'm going to just offer you about 30 or 45 seconds here for you to sit in silence, pray to the Lord and thank Him for the work of Jesus Christ. And then we'll take our elements together.
brothers and sisters, there in your hand, you hold a picture of the Lord's body broken for you. Take and eat. You hold a picture, a reminder of the perfect, precious, powerful blood of Jesus Christ poured out for you. Drink in remembrance of Him. I want to end this morning with an illustration because we still have one more question to answer and that's, what does that mean for us today, Tim? Danny, will you help me grab all this? I've got some items here with me. What do we, what do, we do with this? I think if this large uh, fishbowl here represents your heart, I think this is the way we often approach Christianity. We say... I've got a little bit in there and I think it's going to cover me on the day when I stand before the Lord. And then for the rest of our lives, we look to these other things. Comfort. Approval. Power. Control. And we say, but I think I still need a little bit of that. We look at our money or our status. And we say, I also think I have to have a little bit of that if I'm going to have any value or any worth. We look at our family or our relationships. And we say, I think I need a little bit of that if I'm ultimately going to have meaning, if my life is ultimately going to be significant. And so what we have is this mixed bag a little bit of grace at the bottom that we're really hoping saves us when we stand before the Lord. Maybe some sort of mental ascent to the person of Jesus Christ and what He did at the cross. And then this clinging to all of these idols. I don't think that's what the Lord wants. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, our life is to be filled with a knowledge of the grace of what He did on the cross. Our life is to be entirely transformed by the work of Jesus Christ and what He did for us on our behalf. And then, because we are still sinful people, we will have moments where we're tempted to look toward this and to think to ourselves, maybe I need a little bit of that if I'm ultimately going to be fulfilled or if I'm ultimately going to have hope or if I'm ultimately going to have meaning and worth and value in life. But what you need to do is look to the cross and continue to be filled. For this reason. So that you cling so tightly to grace. That your heart lashes itself to the grace of Jesus Christ on the cross. That when you even attempt to put something like this in, it just has nowhere to go. You fill your heart so full of the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ that you literally could not put something else in if you tried. And when you're tempted to look to the idols of the world, instead, you remind yourself of the grace of Jesus Christ and you stare at the cross and there is no room for that thing in your heart. 
That is the answer to our idolatry. It's not seven self-help tips that will help you worship the right thing. The answer to our idolatry is the grace of Jesus Christ. More and more of the truth of Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross so that when you stand before the Lord, this is what you have to offer. Nothing of yourself, but a heart full of the person of Jesus Christ. And in that moment, his precious, perfect, potent blood is going to wash you white and clean in the sight of the Lord and you are going to enter into his presence for all of eternity. Amen? Amen. Amen. That is the answer to our idolatries, to cling to the grace of Jesus Christ. We don't think that we're going to stand before the Lord because we've written off the reality of his righteousness and his holiness and his justice. No, we think we're going to stand before the Lord because he is just and justice has been satisfied in Jesus Christ. And that is the only thing we need. Yes? Yes. Yes. Let's stand up and sing together.